What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Wilfred Frost. A volatile day on Wall Street with the major averages swinging between gains and losses nearly uh, all day. The Dow was up 171 points at the high. Uh, Right now uh, is exactly flat. Uh, The tech sector leading the gains. The Nasdaq up about a 1% uh, or so, uh, 1% or so from its highs uh, of the year. And the S&P tech sector the only one in the green for 2020. Oil weighing on sentiment today as uh, crude, crude prices uh, reverse course, falling 6% at the lows. Uh, right now, uh, crude prices are down about 5%. I don't know this set very well. Am I meant to be looking here? I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, let's get to Bob Pisani with a look at the markets. Bob. The important thing about today, uh, Wilf, is that we had early gains. We had this yesterday on reopening hopes, and then it faded. And again, this happened yesterday, a little bit of a pattern here. So let's just say for the moment, we're in a trading range, about 100 points on either side of 2840. We've been this way for the last three weeks or so. If you take a look at the S&P 500, we're in that trading range right now. And again, volume's been light. Strong opens often, and then you fade late in the day. One thing, uh, saving grace, tech's been great today here. Uh, even with a flat day like today, three to two declining to advancing stocks, the mega caps again on fire. And I've said this so many times, when you have Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, and Amazon and Alphabet, all the biggest stocks, the five biggest, up one to two percent on a day, the S&P is generally going to be positive, even with three to two declining to advancing stocks. Working our way through earnings season, just want to point out we're 65 percent through here and about a third of the companies in the S&P 500 have withdrawn guidance. This is why you get this volatility. It's hard to figure out where the stocks should be. We've had buyback suspensions, dividend suspensions uh, on top of that. That's making it very difficult to figure out what's the right levels for the stock market. And we've had a lot of good news, bad news comments. Look today at Pinterest. This is very typical of good news, bad news. Pinterest comes out and says, hey, our global monthly active users is up 26 percent. That's a terrific number. But April revenues were down 8%. That's not good news. And this good news, bad news thing, very typical in the earnings call. And you see today, Pinterest down notably. New York Times, guys, said very similar things. We'll talk more about that in the next hour. Back to you. Yeah, Mark Thompson, CEO of New York Times, coming up. Uh, Bob, uh, to your point that the guidance being removed, does that mean markets aren't trading in any way off typical P valuations and it's much more technicals or, or other factors like how strong is your balance yeah. sheet? You, you can write a story about, you know, PEs all you want, but nobody has any clue what the actual numbers are. So most people feel that the S&P is going to see about a 25 percent decline in earnings for 2020. So that means you were trading anywhere from 22, 23, 24 times forward numbers. But nobody knows if those numbers are accurate because the guidance has been suspended. So they're just literally throwing numbers out. You're making broad guesses about things. And that's why you get these swings. The confidence level in these numbers is not very high, Wilf. Bob Sani, thanks so much uh, for that. Uh, turning now okay. to the PPP program and a new study by the Federal Reserve showing that loans haven't been going to the hardest hit areas. Steve Leesman joins me with those details. Steve. Well, good afternoon. Yeah, the two researchers from the New York Fed finding that it did not go to the hardest hit areas. It was 
poorly, even unevenly distributed the first $350 billion round of the Paycheck Protection Program with smaller states, states with less COVID, lower jobless, those, those jobless claims, those states getting the bulk of it. Uh, taking a look at some of the maps they provided, what you see here is that small in the small states, a much higher percentage of small businesses got loans there compared with the larger states. For example, New York businesses, less than 20% of small businesses in New York got loans compared to, say, for example, Nebraska, where greater than 55% of small businesses got loans in the first round of PPP. They also found that it was not correlated by the number of COVID cases. You can see in the next map that states that had a lot of COVID cases, for example, New York, uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, especially Washington, those states were not high on the list of getting a lot of PPP loans there. They said in their study, quote, there is no statistically significant relationship between the severity of the economic impact of COVID-19 measured both in terms of cases and unemployment claims and the share of small businesses getting PPP loans. What they did find was a high correlation between uh, states with a large share of community banks. It seems like those banks got into the first round. We'll see if that is um, rectified in the second round for which data is not available. Wilf, I think the concern here is it creates the possibility of really credit misallocations where rather than uh, the best companies getting aid or the neediest companies getting aid, it was really done randomly, and we might pay a price for that down the road economically. Definitely, Steve. Uh, it's a really interesting uh, survey. Stick with us because we're going to discuss this in a little bit more detail, uh, particularly along the, the, the theme of uh, what can be done to fix uh, any new rounds if they are needed. Tony Frado joins us, uh, founding partner at Hamilton Place Strategies, a CNBC contributor. T Tony, if I kick things off with, with you, what, what yeah. do you think uh, has been the, the main problem with the design of the PPP program in the first place? Yeah, look, I, I think that, you know, there have been obviously a number of problems on, you know, some of the gating and who's distributing and the size of the loans and what to do with them. But I will tell you that by far in a class by itself is really just the underfunding of the program. We wouldn't be talking about you know, problems in distribution and who got money and who didn't get money and who got it first and whether they deserve to get it first. If Congress had just merely treated this like the entitlement program it is, and an entitlement program says, if I qualify, the money is there for me. And we found out that that's not the case because Congress keeps underfunding the program. We're probably going to run out of money again and have to come back to it again. So that's where I first begin is fully fund this program. In fact, overfund it. Uh, you know, so nobody has to really rush to the window to go get money. S Steve, if, if that had been the case, and I guess it could still be the case going forward, uh, it wouldn't reduce the case of, of certain companies taking money when they don't need it as much as others, but it, but it would at least address the issue of, of some being squeezed out that need it most. I think that's absolutely right. And a quick caveat here. Look, the Treasury threw up a quick, very quick program here, and obviously... You know, speed is the enemy of efficiency in this regard. Uh, and so uh, I think that needs to be said. If there was more money, we wouldn't be having quite this conversation. I think, Wilf, you would know better than I do and, and that uh, the larger banks were a little more successful in the second round because of this issue of being able to process in the batches or the large numbers there. But I think another key issue is that I don't agree at all with the idea of forcing these companies to use the loans for their employment. I don't think that makes any sense to me. I think employment should have gone to uh, for, for unemployment insurance. That would, it should have been handled that way. 
and that businesses should have been given loans to take care of their other credits because those just as surely as employment could be a reason why they can't reopen on the backside of this. And Tony, to the point of uh, that debate, speed versus efficiency, despite some of the teething problems and imperfections, do, do you think it will prove to be an effective program in terms of offsetting some of the big uh, economic problems we're facing? Yeah, I do. But look, by the way, I would agree with with uh, with Steve. You know, we'd love to see it. We need to see a lot more flexibility in this program going forward. But I would I, I compare it to where the you know the Treasury and the Fed are today with the uh, the Main Street Lending Program, which it seems to me they're doing they're taking all of the time to try to perfect this program. But now we're six weeks after passage of the CARES Act, and we still don't have dollar one coming out of the Main Street Lending Program. So I think we're going to look back and say PPP was imperfect. But really amazing and being able to push out, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars out to these businesses and could have been done better. Sure. But in this tight window, it's been imperfect, but pretty effective right now for like Main Street lending program. We say it might end up being perfect, but maybe underwhelming. And it's, uh, you know, uh, certainly in speed. But the speed Tony, that Steve was talking about, we don't see speed yet. But, Tony, I, I would just come back and say. The administration has yet to articulate a philosophy underlying this program. I think speed was yeah. the philosophy, but they yeah. haven't told us yet who gets it, why they get it, what it's supposed to pay for. Is everybody supposed to be made whole? What we have here is a situation where the recipients of it were essentially random, depending upon the ability of the bank to get an SPA loan number, and mm -hmm. they survive and those don't. And so we don't have an allocation here where we have the best economic outcome if it's random mm -hmm. survival and not some form of underlying concept behind the survival. Well, two, two points to add to, to that, Steve. I, I think uh, one is, to Tony's point, if they massively increase the size of this, that issue uh, would be removed. I think also in, in defense of some of the companies, Shake Shack always gets, uh, uh, gets uh, named here, the, the government was very unclear to begin with or mixed messages to begin with about what the point was, and they kind of backtracked on that. Initially, it was like, take the money if you need it. Uh, now it's much more like only if you absolutely need it and, and certain uh, caveats on, on that. But I just want to come back to a, a broader point, though, uh, Tony, in terms yep. of the, the Main Street lending program. Clearly, bond markets are functioning, uh, given the yep. Fed's action. Uh, and the biggest companies, uh, whether you're, you're an airline or, or a Boeing, you're still able to get funding. And clearly, the PPP program is getting money to a lot of the smaller companies that need it, if not... Uh, or all of them, if Main Street Lending Program successfully addresses the gap in the middle, w will we look back in the end of this year and think, wow, no company that, that didn't need to go bust went bust because uh, they did successfully get two or three programs out that kind of covered the whole size of, of, of the company universe? Wilfred, I think, you're, I think you're exactly right. I mean, and, and I think we should give a lot of credit to, you know, the, the sort of creativity here in trying to fill these gaps. It's such a unique problem. And I think we are going to see that. I think we're going to, you know, assu again, assuming that Main Street Lending Program gets off the ground and there's take up, there, there are some potential complexities with, uh, with the program that might uh, inhibit take up. And I know there's, you know, interest in not repeating some of the problems where there's at least the perception that some of the wrong kinds of uh, companies are getting assistance. We'd always rather see the private sector uh, fill that role. But I, th I do feel like that's what we're going to see. We're seeing a lot of creativity in these programs. They are, by and large, pretty successful so far. Steve, quick final question to, to you, which is, which is this. I mean, uh, even if we put that optimistic uh, spin on things, there is a limit to how long these funds last, uh, both 
uh, from the government side, but also for the companies receiving it. D does that increase the pressure on the government to allow reopenings, almost sort of regardless of how successful they are? I think that's right, Wilf. And I think uh, that the discussion, we keep looking backwards. And this is an interesting look backwards, but we should keep looking forwards. We should be having a discussion now about having another round of funding available and fixing the mistakes of the past and making sure that the neediest companies and the worthwhile companies get that money. We may get into a situation where the government has to pick winners and losers, and I think we want to avoid that whatsoever. And so we should be having this discussion right now about another round. If it's not needed, put it away. If it's needed, we take it off the shelf, punch the button, get the money out to the small businesses so they get up and running. Tony, Steve, thanks so much. Uh, great to see you both. Thanks, Will. Now, staying with the small business uh, program, Wells Fargo uh, lower today, along with most of the financial sector. This is we're getting news that the bank has been getting federal and state government inquiries into how it handled its PPP loans. Kate Rogers joins me with the latest on that front. Kate. Hi, Wilford. Wells Fargo revealing in a filing late yesterday that it has received formal and informal inquiries from state and local government agencies regarding its offering of PPP loans and has been hit with class action suits in state and federal courts in Texas, California, and Colorado. It is the first bank to disclose an investigation. We did reach out to Wells Fargo, but we have not yet heard back with comment. This after the DOJ confirmed to CNBC last week its criminal division is working with the SBA, law enforcement, and the banks to investigate the program, adding, quote, our analysis has already found indicia of fraud among certain loan applications submitted in connection with the program. And just yesterday, the DOJ announcing the first set of charges against two men in Rhode Island for fraudulently attempting to access more than half a million dollars in PPP loans for four different businesses that, in fact, had no employees. Surely there will be more of these to come. And the latest PPP data showed that 2.37 million loans have now been made for a total value of $181 billion. So we are still a ways off from hitting the $310 billion cap that as the average loan size comes down this round to about 79,000 per business. Well, back over to you. And Kate, cl clearly there's been lots of, uh, the, the, the word fraud's been mentioned lots of times as, as something that may arise with this program. Uh, if a company has made a fraudulent request for PPP funds, though, the, the, the punishment will fall on that individual company as opposed to to the banks. Yeah, absolutely true. Like we've seen these two men in Rhode Island charged. But uh, with regards to last week's DOJ investigation, Bloomberg had reported that the focus right now was really on the banks making the loans. Uh, so it remains to be seen where these charges uh, wind up going. But for now, the first two announced against individuals who fraudulently mm -hmm. tried to access the program for businesses that weren't up and running at the time of COVID and who didn't actually have employees. Yeah, the story on Wells Fargo is slightly different there. Kate, thanks so much. Uh, we'll mention Wells Fargo down 2.5% today. It's down 7% uh, for the week. So very much the laggard of the big banks this week, though the regional index, of course, Wells is often seen as a sort of super regional, uh, is down about 5% or so. So its type of bank uh, is down more than the rest of the pack this week already, uh, though Wells at the bottom of the pile down 7%. Uh, now, the uh, latest uh, on small business uh, news uh, goes to, for more on that. Sorry, go to CNBC dot com forward slash small business on the housing front we've got weekly mortgage applications today it looks like home buyers are making their way back into the market and diana olick joins us with a closer look at those numbers diana 
Yeah, well, if it's possible, they're coming back very slowly. Mortgage applications to purchase a home rose for the third straight week, up 7% from a week earlier, still 19% lower annually, but that annual loss is shrinking by the week. Three weeks ago, purchase volume was down 35% annually. Now, demand last week was led by strong growth in Arizona, Texas, and California. Buyers are responding to incredibly low interest rates and virtual house hunting. The average on the 30-year fixed fell to a new record low, 3.4%. Lower rates, though, are not boosting refinance volume. Those applications decreased 2% for the week. They're still 210% higher than a year ago, though, when rates were a full percentage point higher. But lenders are not giving refires those same low rates because there's higher risk for them on refis should those loans go into the government's forbearance program over the next couple of months. Well, Diana, thank you so much for that. Uh, we've... Uh... God, I was about to say 45 minutes left of the session. No, this is not the final hour of trade. Uh, multiple hours left of the session, but we are at the moment uh, higher by uh, just a handful of basis points on the S&P and lower by a handful on the Dow. Uh, the Nasdaq still leads the charge up 1%. The uh, New York Times company uh, in the green today up about 7% uh, reporting an earnings beat, but the company uh, gave a weak advertising outlook. We'll speak with the company's CEO uh, about plans to offset that dive in sales coming up. Uh, plus 35% of S&P 500 companies have pulled their guidance this year. So how do you invest in a world with no clarity from companies? Uh, what metrics should we be focused on? That's still to come here on The Exchange. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Uh, shares of The New York Times uh, popping after first quarter earnings beat estimates on the top and bottom line. The newspaper added 587,000 new digital subscribers, but its advertising revenue was weak, dropping 8% on the digital side and 21% on the print side. The company also warning ad revenue could fall 50% during the current quarter. Here for a CNBC exclusive, Mark Thompson, CEO and president of The New York Times uh, Company, former director general of the BBC. Uh, Mark, good to see you. How are you doing? Good, thank you. I've just been shaving my shaving my beard back a bit. It was, I was getting a little bit of a Robinson Crusoe look, but we're looking looking okay well, now. Well, it would have been it would have been welcome. I'm a little sad to be honest. I would have liked to have seen it. Anyway, uh, Mark, before we get to that uh, split between uh, ad revenue and subs revenue, I, I guess the first question would be on uh, print newspapers versus online newspapers. Uh, you must be uh, counting your lucky stars. You'd already gone through the pivot that that you've overseen over the last uh, four or five years. Yeah, no, that's, clearly, clearly this is a moment where, um, although our home delivery uh, newspapers uh, uh, were continuing to work like clockwork, uh, demand for home deliveries, actually, we've seen some real buoyancy in that um, since the coronavirus stopped. But of course, you know, in, in a time of, 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 of lockdown, um, having a digital offering and a subscription model makes sense. Um, what I want to say before anything is that we wish this wasn't happening. We wish this story wasn't happening. We wish that people weren't dying and we wish that our colleagues weren't like some of your colleagues having to go out and cover this and risk their own health on the, on the front lines in hospitals and elsewhere. So, you know, this is not good news for anyone, this, this, this virus. But it's true um, that, you know, with a subscription first 
digital uh, news offering, you know, we're seeing very strong audiences. Well, here, here to your to your message in the middle of that, uh, Mark. Do, do you think that uh, we'll see newspapers across the country go under because of that uh, that that balance between print and uh, online? Sure. Now, at the New York Times, I mean, advertising is a very important um, uh, revenue stream for us, but it's less than twenty five percent of our economics. Um, um, and uh, we have this very strong growing revenue from, in particular, digital subscriptions. And the reason the market has broadly welcomed our results today is because they can see that engine of, of strategic growth is, is, is also working really well. But clearly, if you're a media company, not just newspapers, but also a lot of TV uh, across America who are really dependent on advertising, I, I think at least for the, for, the, for the coming months, this is going to be quite a bleak picture because of the you know the broader macroeconomics and and the fact that many advertisers are not advertising right now and and, uh, talk us through that uh, including the guidance mark you gave about the current quarter on advertising is it across the board all types of advertising spenders cutting or is it certain types of sectors if if you thought about um you know um category by category and thought about the coronavirus and the impact you're reporting on day in day out, you could kind of guess what's happening. And people aren't traveling, people aren't staying at hotels, people, not many people are buying cars. The list goes on. So um, it's across print and digital. We said overall, uh, we guided in the current quarter, Q2, so um, um, April, May, June, uh, we thought advertising across the piece would would fall by between 50 and 55%. So essentially halving compared to the second quarter uh, last year. So this is a big hit. It's a big hit to us. As I've said, it's only a relatively small part of our total economics. But I have to say, um, it is nonetheless, it is a real indication of uh, the scale of the broader economic hit which is happening in this country and indeed because we're feeling this internationally across the world though i want to say in asia we are seeing um some pickup in demand for advertising there are parts of asia where um you know the rfps the the requests for for space are coming in and we are beginning to see some bounce back in some markets in asia Uh, and mark in terms of the growth in in subscribers uh, ahead of expectations that you saw do you feel like that's the typical New York Times customer just sped up a, a little bit or, or is it a different type of customer because of lockdown? They're coming to you. I, I saw you mentioned on the earnings call because of your cooking section or, or other things that help them from uh, their work from home lives. We're trying to do a lot more than uh, we're, we're trying to do the best coverage we can, the best coverage we hope in the world, the most trustworthy coverage in the world about the pandemic and its consequences. But we're trying to do a lot more. We've got a wonderful new section called At Home, Started in Digital. We've now launched a new print section in the middle of this, At Home, which is some of the ways, some of the things you can do, some of the solving some of the problems you might have, and also some of the kind of ways you can entertain yourself and your family at home. Um, and so we're offering a very, a very broad spectrum. And what's interesting is both the millions of new registered users we're getting and the many hundreds of thousands of new subscribers uh, far more than we've ever had before. What's so interesting is amongst these are some, you know, definitely younger, definitely more ethnically diverse, more geographically widely spread people than we've seen. So one of the things we're seeing is a real broadening, not just of the total Times audience. We reached more than more than half of all American adults um, in March this year, more than half. It's not just the total audience, but the engaged audience is a broader audience. And it's uh, it's a much more diverse uh, and younger audience than we've seen before. Uh, and Mark, just finally, in terms of uh, online and on the app, uh, what type of stories are people 
uh, flocking to? And, and, and did interest on corona coverage decline at any point? Have people got a little bit lethargic towards the story? What I want to say is there was a, a, a peak, particularly around the announcements of the lockdowns um, um, uh, around the world, but also in, in, in the US, um, and a lot of anxiety um, in, in, in late March. We saw extraordinary peaks. And I would say that we're seeing now um, uh, more interest in, in, in non-corona, I think, as people settle into this, this, this strange period of, of, of isolation and, and working from home. Actually, their interests are broadening again. Uh, and um, um, cooking, you mentioned cooking. We are seeing immense interest in some of the food um, uh, 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 recipes and, and food coverage of the Times. We're seeing our, our crossword and games app um, doing really well. People are uh, we have Wirecutter, a consumer uh, choice uh, uh, um, site. That's doing really well because people are actually doing a lot of shopping, uh, albeit on you know remote shopping, uh, shopping online. That's happening as well. So we're seeing a broadening of the interest. Though the heart of this, this extraordinary story, it's a health story, it's a med- medical story, it's a political story, it's a geopolitical story, it's an enormous economic story, and that still overall is still dominating what people come to the Times for. Mark Thompson, as always, uh, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Good to see you, Wolf. Bye-bye. Mark Thompson, the CEO and president of the New York Times company. Still to come, uh, no cash, no problem. PayPal and Square performing this year as uh, more people turn to electronic payments during the pandemic. Uh, will their earnings justify the rally? We've got a preview coming up. Plus, while Americans are still worried about COVID-19, it appears that concern fatigue may be setting in. Uh, the details ahead. And a reminder, you can always watch us or listen to us live on the CNBC app, The Exchange, back in a couple minutes. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Uh, Let's get the very latest on the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Over to Sue Herrera for those headlines. Sue. Thank you so much, Wilf, and good afternoon, everyone. The Supreme Court continuing teleconference hearings in response to the virus pandemic. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg will be dialing in today from her hospital room in Baltimore, where she is being treated for a gallbladder infection unrelated to COVID-19. Today's case deals with employees' right to opt out of covering employee birth control for religious or moral reasons. A judge ruling that the New York Democratic presidential primary must take place on June 23rd, saying it would be unconstitutional to deny former candidates accurate representation at the Democratic convention. The primary had been canceled to decrease residents' exposure to the virus. 
And Dr. Margaret Harris of the World Health Organization says the virus outbreak likely originated from an animal source, saying that because it comes from animals, it is very likely that the virus will reemerge at some point. And Governor Murphy of New Jersey is holding his news conference right now. We'll have details on that next hour. As always, for more on the coronavirus coverage, you can go to CNBC.com. Wilf, back to you. Sue, thank you. See you in a few hours. Uh, PayPal and Square set to report earnings after the bell today. One of the big questions is whether the digital boom has been enough to offset pain in other areas for both of those companies due to the pandemic. Kate Rooney joins me with more on that story. Kate. Hey, Wilf. Square and PayPal have two conflicting factors when they report earnings today. Let's start with the positive, though, that digital payments boom. Analysts are expecting this shift to online shopping and mobile payments due to the pandemic to help PayPal and Square. It's a long-term headwind for them. PayPal's app Venmo is also expected to see higher adoption rates as people can't pay each other in person. Same goes for Square's Cash App. But on the downside, we're seeing plenty of near-term headwinds. For Square, its core business is that seller payments ecosystem. So think of those credit card terminals you see in coffee shops, for example. Small businesses remain closed, of course, and analysts are looking to see how severe the slowdown was, especially in March. PayPal is less tied to brick and mortar. It's more indexed to e-commerce, but it has international exposure. PayPal recently expanded to China. Analysts are wondering about growth there. And another big question is lending. They both provide working capital to small businesses and were approved to distribute emergency loans. Analysts are looking for any color on their role in the second round of PPP. Wilf. Yeah, Kate, on that point, uh, more and more they're looking like banks, and yet they're still not FDIC-insured banks and regulated like that. I wonder. That's a long-term question, whether they're getting closer to apply for, for that sort of uh, name and, and status. The question I have uh, is we're going to get a really interesting insight onto why people use Venmo. Clearly, no one wants to be using and handling cash at this time. But at, this, at the same point, what do, do users uh, of Venmo use it for? And, and I think it's heavily linked to social interactions, which must have fallen significantly too. That will be really interesting to hear on the call as well. They say that that's a behavioral change. So once you use Venmo and you figure out how to use it, there's sort of this ripple effect that you might suggest, hey, mom, I'm going to pay you for dinner or something like that. You have this ripple effect and that social network. So even if you're not with people face to face, they say that that could actually accelerate adoption. The same thing with Cash App. So they do tend to uh, update numbers on quarterly earnings. We'll see how the growth is there. And that could potentially be a long term win uh, for those payment companies. Kate Rooney, thanks so much for that. Uh, Still to come, companies across all sectors pulling guidance as COVID-19 continues to take its toll on the economy. So how do you invest in a market with no clear outlook? We'll discuss that. Plus, the sharing economy is taking a hit amid the recent shutdowns, especially Uber and Lyft. We'll look at what to expect from their earnings and what it might mean for others in the sharing ecosystem. The exchange is back in just a few. Welcome back to The Exchange. Uh, let's have a check on the markets and some of today's big movers. Dom Chu's got that for us. Hey, Dom. All right. So, Wilfred, the major stock indices have moved between marginal gains and losses with the Nasdaq, the real outperformer, as you can see here. Now, the gains today are being led by big technology. You can see that reflected in the sector. Heat Mac Tech, the far and away the best performing sector, discretionary consumer ser- or communication services, really the outperformers. The laggard so far today, financials 
energy and utilities. Now, some of the stocks on the move today include FLIR Systems, which is the best performer in the S&P 500 after reporting profits that matched analyst estimates on better than expected sales. Now, FLIR has seen demand for its thermal cameras and temperature screening products rise given the COVID-19 pandemic. General Motors shares also on the rise after the car maker posted better than expected quarterly results and said it will reopen some production facilities in the U.S. on May 18th and will end on shares and the surge in Beyond Meat after the maker of plant-based meat alternative foods reported sales that doubled over the first quarter this past year. Strength in the restaurant and food services business really drove some of that. Beyond did, though, withdraw its full-year forecast due to that virus pandemic. So, Wilfred, keep an eye on those shares. I'll send things back over. And, Dom, we're about to do a section uh, in terms of guidance being removed, and that's certainly a theme that makes it harder. We also all wondered coming into this earnings season whether earnings would be a factor to even move stocks. Clearly, Beyond and others highlight that it has been. Even if it's only backward-looking, it has been a factor. So it it depends on whether or not that backward-looking information has now been reflected in the stock previously, right? So some of these concerns have now been addressed about the results that we've now seen past. The idea that people have now withdrawn their forecast is giving a lot of traders a little bit less obviously clarity into the into the future but we're trying to figure out what exactly will be the next key driver if you can't say that it's going to be earnings growth of this in the next quarter or the quarter after that that's going to be the real key but other than that you got to find some metric to be able to say hey here's what the future forecast looks like in some way shape mm-hmm. or form for these companies Tom, thanks very much for that the dow by the way uh, as we stand bang on flat s&p uh, up two tenths of a percent nasdaq up just over one percent now during the coronavirus pandemic it's uh, become the norm for companies not to give guidance uh, with earnings reports. How do you invest in this environment where the future is so cloudy? Joining me, Craig Callahan, uh, president of Icon Advisors, and Bryce Dotti, senior portfolio manager uh, at Sid Investment Associates. Uh, a very good afternoon uh, to, to you both. Uh, Craig, if I start with you, uh, what, what do you think has been moving the market of late? Is it just technicals or, or is there some way to come to a, a PE multiple, even, even though we don't have that clear guidance? At Icon, we're value investors, and we find the market to be extremely attractive right now. We've been fully invested during this rebound, and we would expect stocks to be priced higher a year from now. But, but if, you're, if you're a value investor, what valuation are you keying off if, if you can't be sure what the E part of, uh, of the P multiple is? We never use PE or price to book. We build off an equation Benjamin Graham published last uh, century. We've modified it. So we compute intrinsic value for companies, and we're finding the market now to be priced 30 to 40% below fair value. Uh, Bryce, uh, where do you stand on this debate? Are you finding it difficult to, to value companies? Well, it's very difficult without any guidance to really know what uh, companies are worth and, and uh, both their stocks and their bonds. Uh, as, a, as a bond investor, you know, we're seeing a ton of debt being raised in the corporate bond market. And the way people are valuing a lot of these companies is how long can they survive? What is their cash burn? How much do they have? How much cash do they have on hand? If they're able to raise a billion dollars and let's say they're an airline with a $50 million a day cash burn, okay, they just bought themselves an extra 200 days to survive. And that's step one. Step two is you need to see some sort of slowing in the spread of the virus. Once you do that, you'll see analysts start to use 2021 earnings expectation for trying to value stocks. But that's, that'll be, provide some lift somewhere down the road, two, three months down the road. Right now, what's really bizarre as a bond investor is seeing that 
companies' bonds do better as they are borrowing more and more debt. It's supposed to be the other way around. But, but what's happened is that the more capital that are able to raise in the stock and the bond market, it means the longer the company can survive until things rebound. So it's, it's a little bit strange to be valuing companies on their survivability right now. Craig, uh, is your optimism on the stock market based on economic reopenings going smoothly and happening soon, or, or is that not even necessary uh, for you to be uh, optimistic about these valuations? Well, first, at the bottom in late March, we, we had all the behaviors and conditions typical of bottoms. And historically, the stock market has led the economy to, by six to nine months. So all the bad news was priced in in late March, and now the market is just telling us they expect a rebound by the, the fourth quarter of this year. And so tell, tell us some of the, the, the things you're most attracted to at the moment, Craig. Well, we like the economically sensitive uh, sectors, consumer discretionary, uh, information technology, industrials, those that are uh, some in materials also, those that are sensitive to the economy. Bryce, where do you stand on the technicals? Uh, I, I get your point on, on strength of balance sheets. Uh, what about the technicals in the short term? Well, you know, on, on the bond side, we like um, anything with credit. We even like municipal bonds, a great deal, both taxable and tax-exempt municipal bonds. There are plenty of minefields, though, out there with uh, senior housing having some issues. The, uh, the, the Treasury, you know, Mnuchin coming out and saying, hey, we're going to borrow $3 trillion. I, I, I don't know how that's going to weigh on the stock technicals or the bond technicals right now, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem like a good thing. What we also need to do is to see some sort of guidance from the Fed saying, okay, how many of the, that $3 trillion in, in debt are we going to buy? How much are they going to absorb in that? And that will affect both stock and bond valuations in a way that uh, I don't think everyone's factoring in right now. If they, if they come out in a big way and they soak up a lot of that debt, a lot of it's going to be in uh, uh, T-bills, $2.6 trillion. It's going to be issued in T-bills. If, if the you know, Fed comes out and vacuums all those up, mm -hmm. I think stocks and bonds could, could do quite well. If they don't, that's, that's going to be a huge, huge uh, pile of debt for the investors to try and swallow. Bryce, Craig, thank you both very much for joining us. Good to see you both. Still to come, uh, while uh, Americans are still worried about the coronavirus, uh, many starting to get concerned fatigue in one group. Uh, of people is feeling it more than others. So that's uh, coming up. Uh, and with social, so social distancing across the country, auto dealers are feeling the squeeze. We'll speak with uh, a company that's trying to save the industry and change the car shopping experience as we know it. Welcome back. The 2020 presidential election will come down to a handful of states. And in those states, concerns about COVID-19 may be fading. Kayla Tausche joins me now with the results of the latest CNBC States of Play survey. Kayla. Wilf, those worries might be fading among Republicans, but Democrats in dense cities are still highly concerned. Take a look at these numbers from the most recent fourth installment of the CNBC change research poll conducted over the weekend in six key battleground states. It shows just 39 percent of Republicans still have serious concerns about COVID. That compares to 68 percent of total respondents and 95 percent of Democrats. And it's a significant change from the end of March when you can see that 
Concerns converged among all three of those groups. Perhaps Republicans are just getting restless in this lockdown nature. Uh, when asked about freedom to move around, 33 percent of Republicans said that that was excellent or good compared to 55 percent of Democrats, again, possibly because many Democrats are in big cities where things are more walkable. And Republicans, that restlessness is translating into more willingness to go out and do things and patronize different businesses. 77 percent of Republicans say they'd go, they'd go to a hair salon. 52 percent say they'd go to a bar. 37 percent sporting events. 54 percent would use daycare. And you can see it's just single digit percentages among Democrats. But there's one group of activities that really neither party is that excited about, Wilf, and that is traveling. A majority of all respondents said they didn't want to get on a flight. They didn't want to use public transit. They did not want to use ride sharing. So perhaps it's going to take a little bit longer for any of these groups to come around there. Kayla, it's kind of fascinating to see the, the level of partisan divide on this. I, I guess you would expect a partisan divide on the question of is the government handling it well, but to, to see it uh, such a, a different split based on uh, whether people are getting bored of hearing about the virus or not is quite surprising. But to the question of is the government handling it well and, and how concerned are they uh, perhaps about the way it's uh, influencing the, the economy, where do we stand on, on that question? Well, it's definitely manifesting itself in some distrust of public officials. We've seen uh, the support level among uh, respondents for scientific, scientific professionals and the doctors in the administration definitely take a leg lower in recent weeks. As people start to distrust some of this data and distrust some of the moves coming out of the administration that have been led by the doctors uh, in this task, task force, perhaps Republicans feel like enough money has been spent, enough has been done, the country has been locked down for long enough. And Wolf, that is one reason why you're seeing many of the states that have reopened, if not all of them, are red states so far. Kate thanks very much for that. Uh, still to come on the exchange, uh, Uber and Lyft getting set to report results this week as the two ride-sharing giants face declining demand, lawsuits and layoffs. So we've got what to expect coming up. Welcome back uh, to The Exchange. By the way, today on uh, Closing Bell, don't miss two big interviews. We'll speak with the CEO of T-Mobile about its earnings that are out after the bell. Plus, the CEO of SAP will join us, the company working with the German government on contact tracing. Uh, you don't want to miss either of those uh, interviews, nor the uh, final hour of trade, uh, which will take place in that show, unlike this show. Uh, Uber announcing it will make uh, major cuts to its workforce. This is the company uh, gears up for earnings tomorrow. Let's get to uh, all of that with Didier Bosa. Hi, Dee. Hey, Wilf. Well, the pain certainly continues for the sharing economy. Uber's layoff come just a day after Airbnb cut about a quarter of its staff. A week after Lyft announced that it would reduce its headcount by 17 percent, scooter startup Lime has also made cuts. And of course, there's WeWork, whose trouble came long before the COVID crisis, but is expected to cut more employees in the coming months. Now, the sharing economy is getting hit particularly hard amid the pandemic because, well, it requires you to share things like your car or your home uh, or your office space. Now, in a memo to employees, CEO Dara Khosra Shahi said that the cuts 3,700 jobs across support and recruiting were necessary and that the remaining team needs to keep their heads down to get to the other side of this. He is also forgoing his 2020 base salary. 
But Wilf, remember that these are corporate cuts. And beyond that, it's the drivers and the shoppers and the delivery workers of these companies that keep them running. And they have been feeling the effects for weeks already. As independent contractors, they lack the benefits and protections that employees get. And that's gaining more attention than ever as they risk their health to keep these businesses running. So when Lyft reports tonight and Uber tomorrow, this is a reminder that some of their biggest issues predate the global pandemic. I also want to mention, you mentioned the lawsuit, Wilf. Yesterday, California's attorney general and a coalition of city attorneys, they filed a lawsuit against Uber and Lyft claiming that they are wrongfully classifying those contractors and they should be classified as employees. So investors, they want to know beyond the quarterly numbers and how these business models are going to look, how those paths to profitability look in a very different world for the gig economy. Dee, certainly. We look forward to those numbers. I'll see you later on Closing Bell with them. Uh, sticking with transportation, uh, April auto sales are expected to show the worst number in decades once all manufacturers report. But one bright spot which could provide a path forward for the industry is the surge in online car sales as more customers choose to shop from home instead of visiting a showroom. For more, I'm joined uh, by uh, Marsha Rawson, uh, co-founder and CEO of Prodigy, which provides software to facilitate online car sales uh, for uh, dealerships. Uh, Makaya, apologies. Uh, Makaya, thanks so much for, for joining us. Uh, I'm, I'm firstly fascinated to, to what extent to people are willing to buy such a, a big ticket item like a car without having test driven it or, or seen it in person. Yep, great question. So uh, what we actually see is that, um, you know, a lot of sales that are happening online now is for new cars. And if you're buying a new Toyota, a new Honda, uh, there's not a lot of variation dealer to dealer. And so what uh, consumers are really gravitating towards is convenience. And being able to do that online uh, in many states is the only way to get a car now. So like you mentioned, with the gig economy down, car sharing down, ownership is really important uh, as a need of transportation. And online sales in many states is the only way to do that. And uh, t talk us through exactly how your, uh, your service, your software, your app helps uh, make this possible. It's not so much a challenge to existing dealerships as opposed to helping existing dealers. Absolutely. And so we work with existing dealerships. Uh, what we provide is the technology that enables online car sales. And so uh, if you're on a dealership's website that's using our platform, uh, you can basically do all the different uh, things that you would do in store only online. You can see payment options. You can apply for a loan. You can get trading value. You can even go on virtual test drive. So just like you and I are doing a live uh, video chat, you can do that with a dealership. They can give you a tour of the interior of the car, really show you how it works, get you comfortable. And then they offer contact delivery contactless delivery, or you can pick it up at the dealership. I mean, still wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't be enough for me. I, I'd want to see it physically, but, but enough people are doing that. What, what level of sales are we seeing? Uh, I mean, picking up on your app, uh, and, and what does that mean to the total? So the overall car sales total low was actually four weeks ago. Uh, and since then, we've seen overall car sales increase by 148%. Uh, but what's really driving that is online sales. It's up 152% in the last four weeks. Uh, and the four weeks before that was up another 100%. And so uh, these car sales that are happening uh, and these lifts are really being driven by consumers switching to online. And I think that's a really important thing because um, in a post-COVID world, uh, retailers will need to shift and adapt to the way that they uh, handle consumers and deliver value. And so uh, I believe this is not just something that's here for COVID, but here to stay afterwards. It's a new way for uh, consumers to buy cars. How attractive is pricing right now? Not, not so much the headline price for the cars, uh, although that might have come down 
a bit. But the financing options, uh, have they come down a lot with interest rates? Absolutely. Financing uh, options from OEMs are the best they've ever been right now. And so you're seeing a lot of OEMs, zero payments for six months, 0% up to 84 months. Uh, if you're in the market for a car, now is one of the best times ever to buy a car because the incentives are so great. And what about secondhand car sales? Uh, if people's balance sheets are a little pressured. Are they shifting to that market or not? Uh, we're still seeing strong used car sales. It's about 40% of the overall sales that we're seeing from the market. Um, and so uh, online car sales are not really being distinguished too much between new and used. Uh, both are picking up drastically as stimulus checks go out and as people are actually uh, feeling a little more stable, I'd say, in the economy um, from, you know, like I said, four weeks ago. Makai Rawson, thanks so much for joining us. So to come on Power Lunch, the uh, cheering has stopped on college campuses with all sports cancelled. Will they be able to resume in the fall? We'll hear from the commissioner of the Big Ten on what uh, needs to happen before he can kick off the college football season. Plus, the CEO of Papa John's on how his company is dealing with the challenges and opportunities presented by the crisis. Power Lunch with Melissa and Tyler will begin uh, just after this show. And I'll see you coming up on Closing Bell, 3 p.m. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.